0: Hi, this is Irene Al. Welcome to the Progression
1: Podcast. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. Today, I am speaking to Irene Al, who is a complete legend of the design world. She started her career with an HCI degree, uh, moving to Netscape, uh, and then Yahoo, Google, Udacity, and is now an operational partner at Coastal Ventures, where she helps teams with design and org scaling problems. So we talk about her personal journey uh, through all of those companies and how the design problems have changed within those organizations and scaling them. She was once the most prolific hirer of designers uh, in the valley which is a pretty extraordinary title so we talk about that and also uh, we talk about finding the thing that makes you you, that balance of what the world needs from you and what you can offer and want to offer. Uh, so it was just lovely speaking to Irene uh, and hopefully we'll speak many more times. She is absolutely wicked. So enjoy this chat. I really did. Here we go. Irene, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, I'm a longtime time fan. Um, I'm sure many of the people listening to this will have heard of you already or maybe even seen you on stage. You've been at Leading Design a few times and, and uh, various other places. Uh, and there's lots of um, fascinating talks online. You're talking about building a house and all sorts of things going on there. We're not going to talk about building houses today. Um, what I would love... F- for you to do to start with? I mean, your CV is kind of crazy, but if you could give like a, if at all possible, two minute version of how you've got to where you are today and, and, you know, some of those kind of big steps you've taken.
0: Uh, So growing up, I was always a math and science kid and I loved computers. So I majored in electrical and computer engineering. Uh, Originally my thinking was that I would um, learn how to design and build computers in some way, either on the hardware side or the software side. And um, in graduate school, my original intention was to focus on designing computer chips like VLSI chips And once I got to the University of Illinois, I realized that uh, my peers were all designing technology for the sake of technology, and I was far more interested in the practical usefulness of technology um, to build something directed towards solving people's problems. And I felt really disillusioned at the time because it didn't seem like anybody else was interested in that. Um, but then I discovered there was this whole field of engineering psychology and human factors that really originated from studying human perception and cognition and applying the understanding towards designing airplane cockpits, for example, to reduce pilot error in high stressful uh, situations. And so, um I was so pleased to see that the person who literally wrote the textbook on engineering psychology and human factors was actually a professor at the University of Illinois. And I started reaching out to all the professors I could find who had anything to do with cognitive engineering. And fortunately, um, Professor Penny Sanderson, who's now in Australia, uh, took me on. She needed someone who could code and I could code because of my engineering background. And she taught me everything she knew about human-computer interaction. And this was in a day and age before you could actually study this in school. Um, So I'm pleased to see now there are many programs and many students studying that, but this was really novel in its time. And I had no idea where they would lead. Um, but, uh, eventually when I graduated, I landed my first job at Netscape communications. So this was, um, the world's first commercial web browser and, um, it was exhilarating designing the software through which people would, uh, interact with the internet. Um, and then from Netscape, I went on to Yahoo. Um, Yahoo during that time in 1998 was transitioning from being a hand curated web directory of websites to being sort of an internet portal, so at that time Yahoo was just about to launch My Yahoo, and they had bought Rocket Mail four one one, and they were about to launch uh, web based email, and they wanted somebody with my background to help them build a practice of human centered design. So, um, how do you more systematically study how people interact with the technology they're using, and design technology that works the way people work, um, so that your products are easy to use, easy to understand, easy to learn, and and products that people actually want to use. So I built and ran Yahoo's human-centered design practice. Uh, we called it the user experience team. Um, and uh, ran that for about eight years. And during those eight years, it was almost like three different companies. There was a dot-com boom and then the bust and then sort of the rebirth in the Web 2.0 phase. And around 2006, I joined Google, uh, mostly because I was just so intrigued by what Google was doing. Um, on the surface, it seemed like Google was kind of competing on the same turf as Yahoo, but doing it in a completely different way. Um, and uh, so I joined Google in 2006. And at that time, Google had about 60 designers and 40 usability, uh, usability, usability analysts is what they were called at the time. And, um, and then I, I built that practice and addressed a lot of the cultural uh, challenges that got in the way of good design and um, built a really fantastic team, many of whom are, are now leaders within Google now and um, and then when uh, Google decentralized uh, so we had a, a giant uh, design team and then we had an even bigger product management team and then an even more giant engineering team at some point the company got so big that it needed to decentralize and so uh, when that happened um, I stayed on to kind of oversee the reorganization and the transition but I started to um, think about startups a lot more I was getting a lot of inbound requests from entrepreneurs and VCs um, asking for advice and connections. And so I thought there must be a a place for design and venture capital somehow. And so I left Google and joined Trinity Ventures as an um, executive in residence. And that was really a fixed three-month gig where I could just see how the world of venture worked. Um, and I would get paid just to hang out with the Trinity folks and listen to deals and review pitches and work with our entrepreneurs, and it was super fun. But at the same time, Sebastian Thrun recruited me to join him at Udacity. Um, So Sebastian was responsible for Google's self-driving car efforts, and he had um, posted some of his computer science classes from Stanford online, and practically overnight, hundreds of thousands of people were watching his classes and Meanwhile, physical attendance in his real classes at Stanford started dwindling because people were just watching the classes online. And so he he thought that there was a an opportunity here to democratize higher education and figure out what that looked like. And so Udacity was really the internet's first MOOC um, massive online open courseware. And so at the same time that I was working at Trinity, I was working at Udacity. and um, it was exhilarating being at on both sides of the startup spectrum. So on one hand, we're building a startup, we're raising money, Series B, and pitching to VCs. And then on the other hand, I was on the other side of the table with VCs listening to pitches. So I learned a lot in that process. And um, But I was just so drawn to the team and to the mission and working with Sebastian that I ended up joining Udacity full-time. And um, that was really fun because I was making again. And I didn't understand this at the time, but actually that step uh, inside a startup really helped me build a ton of empathy for the plight that startups go through, Um, all the pivoting and the lack of focus and all the different opportunities and trying to find product market fit. So at the time when I joined Udacity, we had about 20 people and we weren't really sure what our business or product strategy would be. Um, And uh, user research played a huge pivotal role in helping to not only shape the future direction of the company, but also to bring everybody inside the company on board and marching in a single direction. Um, and so once we found product market fit, um, all the things that needed to be done around building a product, building a team, and that sort of thing, I felt like I had done many times over at Yahoo and Google. So um, w- The Node had been trying to recruit me ever since I was thinking about leaving Google. And at the time, I felt like venture capital wasn't a friendly place for women back in 2014, um, so or 2012, actually. And so I, I I kind of held off, but um, around 2014, Vinod started calling again, and that's when I felt like it was time to join venture capital. So I've been at Coastal Ventures since 2014, and in this role, I work with our entrepreneurs and our portfolio to help them be successful, whatever that means. Uh, we have a variety of operating partners. So we have investing partners who are responsible for deal flow and um, vetting um, opportunities, and then making investment decisions, and then sitting on boards and things like that. And we also have a crew of operating partners who have deep functional experience, uh, who work with the entrepreneurs once we decide to invest in them to help them be successful. And then and so my background is in design and user experience. That's where most of the issues that come my way uh, are related to those kinds of things, but it's not necessarily limited to that. And that's what makes my job really interesting. I've had some CEOs come to me um, wanting to talk to me about um, pivoting the whole company towards focusing on customer obsession or product excellence or diversity inclusion. Um, and so really every problem is can be treated like a design problem. And that's how I, you know, in some of the most um, interesting cases, that's how I get involved with some of the portfolio companies. And then in, in at the other end of the extreme, it may be is mundane as like do you know anybody I can hire (laughs) you know everybody's looking for design talent but you know you can imagine the whole range of opportunities and questions in between um so that's that's what I work on we're
1: going to pick through a bunch of that (laughs) of that timeline Um, I think uh, it might make sense to start at the end because I, I from a lot of people that I've talked to I'm a designer by by trade as well and um in fact I know my my ex my last ever boss or my maybe not my last ever boss but my most recent boss is now doing something that sounds fairly similar to you at index and talking and he's really enjoying it but it does sound like a different kind of pattern of work and a different set of things that you you kind of end up taking on and i've heard from other designers who are you know still in-house if you like or even in ic kind of roles who are interested in going into vc and being a kind of designer in residence or, or whatever you want to call that role. I, I we may be running before we can walk in this conversation, but I'm just gonna ask it anyway. What are the kind of things that you should be thinking about if an opportunity presents itself to go and join a VC as a designer? And like what are the things that you should enjoy already and which are the things that you should know You know, this is not going to look like your current job.
0: That's very true. And, you know, the interesting thing is that there's so relatively few opportunities in venture capital for designers. I mean, relative to all the other possible job opportunities for designers, that there is no single standard job description or expectations. It's a naturally ambiguous kind of role because uh, we're all just making it up as we go along. And the other thing I have found is that... um, it's really about uh, what does a single person have to offer or what do a group of people have to offer inside a venture capital firm to the portfolio companies and what is what are the general partners most interested in. So for example, Vinod was most interested in, so he has a philosophy around teaching our portfolio companies how to fish. So the idea is that we are trying to build a sustainable, scalable model where we're enabling our portfolio companies as opposed to doing the fishing for them. So uh, I know of several other um, VC firms where they might employ designers and those designers are actually doing hands-on design work for the portfolio companies, Um, but it quickly doesn't scale. Um, And to some degree, we also wanna make sure that the portfolio companies are motivated uh, to invest in design themselves. Um, And so like if they have a VC firm who's offering free design help or whatever, then you're kind of working against those interests. So, you know, that, that just happens to be our approach is to focus on teaching the companies how to fish. But there are other portfolio companies that are focused on doing the hands-on work. Still others are focused more on facilitation, um, that sort of thing. So it's really about finding the best intersection between what you have to offer and what the portfolio, what, what, the, what the VC firm, you know, yeah. wants. Um, in my case, um, I have a huge network. Um, I've built many, many teams many times over. I've interviewed and recruited and hired you know many people. At one point, I was probably the largest employer of UX talent uh, in the <laughs> industry, um, and so my vast network was really helpful. Um, and then also the experience that I had uh, with teams um, and the range of products was also really useful. Like at Yahoo and Google combined, we had um, you know we had products mobile, desktop, and um, you know any kind of context TVs or whatever. We had our hands in enterprise products as well as mm. consumer, um, and so that range of experience also gave me a lot of perspective. That's very helpful um, to the portfolio companies. Um, so you know that that's also helpful. And then specific to Coastal Ventures, I think we have a we tend to like really nerdy <laughs> companies where there's a lot of technological risk, and so a lot of our founders have backgrounds in. Um, uh, computer science, certainly, um, but then also could be um, uh, biology or, you know, they could be doctors, they could be lawyers. um, And they're applying computer science, they're applying technology towards solving these really interesting problems. And so my background in engineering and then working um, in high tech um, and having that perspective, um, I think um, helps me more effectively collaborate with these uh, extremely technical founders, and I think that could be perhaps specific to this portfolio. Um, so that's just my experience. But, you know, when you look at the range of people who've worked in venture capital as designers, they are certainly not exactly like me. So I, I don't want to say that there is like a, a single template or profile, like if you want to work in VC, do this. I mean, I will say that venture capital is definitely a relationships-based business. And so it helps to know a lot of people It helps to have good relationships with a wide range of people. Uh, It helps to be able to work, you know, to the extent that you can work with a range of people with a range of skills and perspectives and um, have instant credibility with them and be able to convince them of things that they might not know a lot about or be skeptical of. You know, those are useful skills to have in venture capital, for sure.
1: Yeah, just to, to, I mean, some of the things that you touched on, uh, I didn't know that that tidbit about you being the, the uh, most prolific hirer in the industry for a while, that sounds, that sounds, was that uh, at Google?
0: Well, I mean, even at Yahoo, I mean, Yahoo is one of the first companies on the internet to hire, you know, designers uh, at the kind of scale that we were hiring.
1: So I, I wanted to ask you actually about, um, because i have I've read a little bit about, you know, you've talked about the difference between turning up at Yahoo versus turning up at Google and and the two different cultures and how you had to kind of use different aspects maybe of what a layman might call a design skill set to change those different organizations into more, I suppose, design focused versions of themselves. And I, I wondered, you know, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are building design organizations of their own um, and engineering organizations and, and, you know, various other tech, uh, leaders. Um, so when it comes to it, it's, it feels to me like a lot of the things that you have done best have been around organizational change and, and, you know, uh, educating Larry and Sergey or whoever it is.
0: Oh, I don't i credit for that, no. <laughs> but,
1: um, but what was, what were the issues at Yahoo? And then, you know, what was your kind of, what did you try and change there? And then the same for Google? You
0: know, I think, one of the biggest takeaways and perhaps pieces of advice I have is to not approach it from the standpoint of imposing your own will or ego or agenda onto another organization. You really have to meet people where they're at. And in the same way that you would take a customer-centric point of view when designing products and services for other people, you have to do the same thing as a leader of an organization inside a company. Um, I, I understand that, you know, ideally it would be a three-legged stool and design comes in on equal footing as product and engineering. And the reality is that's not always the case. The engineers are building the product. They have the sword because they're writing the code. The product managers are often told that they're the mini CEO of whatever domain it is that they have responsibility for. And so the harsh reality is that designers don't always have the upper hand. They don't always have the power. And so, um, you know, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. You can offer something in a supportive kind of role in a way that can be very strategic. And so my approach has always been to try to understand where is the organization at? What are they most receptive to? And what do they need? And then how can design offer some value in those ways that can be most beneficial to the company and also to the stakeholders so that you engage them, you build trust, you build relationships and then it can become a virtuous cycle where you bootstrap off of that goodwill and start to add in incrementally, you know, more and more design fairy dust on things. Um, so, like Yahoo was a very different situation from Google. Um, like at Yahoo, the the product managers and the engineers had never watched anybody use their products before. I mean, they were slapping together their web pages so quickly, but like they didn't really understand how people were um, using the site and using the site to meet their goals? Like, how did it fit into their lives? And so we started with user research. Um, And we didn't start with, like, uh, field research or things like that. We just started with the most tangible, practical methods, like usability studies. And it sounds so, like, who doesn't do usability studies now? (laughs) I mean, hopefully everybody does. But at the time, it was a very novel thing. And uh, we were very scrappy about it. Uh, Rather than building a a huge lab, um, you know, I just commandeered a conference room. And this was before we had things like Zoom and Go-To Meeting and stuff. So I literally had to throw a, a video cable over the wall, through the ceiling and into an adjacent conference room so that people could watch at the same time. But it was uh, really engaging because people, there was like this voyeuristic appeal. Um, people were so fascinated by watching people use their products. And then from there, they were really motivated to fix the problems that they saw. And so as designers, we could come in and make recommendations and and show them a, a vision for a better future. Because before that, it was really hard to get the time, uh, even to be able to, to have the time to come up with different design possibilities and solutions, or even to understand the problem. Um, and the pr- the product managers as stakeholders just wanted, you know, as fast as possible, get us the mock-ups, get us the mock-ups. And so the user research was a way to build up motivation um, to slow things down so that we could actually have more thoughtful, considered design. And we started by showing these are the problems, let's fix the problems. Then it started growing into like, okay, let's, let's have a more considered approach towards understanding what are people really trying to do? And then uh, come up with solutions for that, helping people meet their goals. At Google, it was a very different circumstance. So the difference between 1998 versus 2006 is that by that time, usability studies was very common practice. And uh, we had an abundance of user research at Google, almost to the point where it was maybe taken for granted a little bit. Um, But there, like the Trojan horse for me was that um, uh, we had a lot of engineers building a lot of prototypes, but they weren't really directed towards solving real user needs. Um, And so the idea there was, well, if we could build empathy um, amongst the engineers because they were the ones who really had the power at Google and still do. So, so we wanted to try to see how could we build up empathy within the engineers so that they could direct the technology that they were building towards solving uh, people's problems. And so we started doing a lot of um, field research, which was controversial at the time uh, because uh, usability analysts were set up almost like a design QA and um, the the organization sort of had antibodies against having designers and researchers collaborating closely with each other. So we had to bust that down. We created the beginnings of what eventually became the design sprint. Um, So I hired this guy Charles Warren from IDEO to help, he helped create IDEO's organization transformation practice. And so I hired him to come to Google to help me transform the design culture at Google. And so we did that by not only introducing new methods like field research into the mix, but also by um, creating these workshops that eventually morphed into design sprints, where we would bring in all the different stakeholders from different functions and help them build an understanding of what users were going through and what their latent needs were, and then facilitating brainstorming and ideation workshops where they would all come in together. We'd go through a process of divergent thinking And then editing and convergent thinking and then prototyping and then testing those ideas all within the span of a week. And it sounds like a no brainer now, but it was really industry changing because before then nobody was doing that in a systematic way. And um, so that was the germ, that was the the birth of what we now know as design sprints that Jake Knapp has popularized so much with his book, uh, which is a fantastic book and everybody should read that uh, because that has really become kind of an industry standard um, playbook for how to run design sprints. Um, but that was really instrumental in changing um, how Google approached design. The other thing we did was like new hire orientation. Uh, I remember when I joined Google, you go through this two-week orientation where you're taken through um, modules such as life of a dollar. Uh, so like how, how do advertisers' dollars trickle through the Google system? What does that mean? And then life of a query. So like when users enter in a search term, how does Google figure out Uh, how, you know, what the results should look like and that sort of thing. And it was stunning to me that we had life of a query, life of a dollar, but we didn't have life of a user. Like of all the things (laughs) in the ecosystem that have lives, you know, the users are the ones who have lives. And so we introduced a module in that new hire orientation called life of a user, um, where the whole intention there was to teach people design thinking. And the idea was that if we could bring in every new hire and have them go through a design thinking training course then eventually the whole company, because we were hiring at such a fast rate, eventually the whole company would think this way, and design thinking would become regular, normal thinking. Um, so, you know, that was, uh, and again, this sounds like so, um, you know, like common sense or something, but this was really novel at the time because nobody was doing this, and and um, Google was so famously engineering-focused that the ratio of engineers to everybody else was actively managed. Um, so it was a, a pretty challenging time um the other thing we did was um introduce more prototyping into the mix so we had an abundance of user research we had an abundance of ui designers um but we didn't really have any way of rapidly testing out ideas and iterating over the designs before launch and so prototyping was really key to that yeah
1: it's really fascinating to hear um Especially when you talk about a usability analyst, which sounds like a, such a strange job title nowadays uh, and and so puts you at the end of that you know by title you are at the end of the you know it's very hard to break out of that if that's your title
0: yeah that was i fought I fought against it. I was really controversial at the time because when that job ladder was established by my predecessors, um, they got pushed back against the term user research because. Um, senior executives said they're not researchers because it's not quantitative and it's not scientific. And so when I came in, that was one of the first things I did was to eliminate the usability analyst job title and we turned it into user research. And then we increased the um, salary ranges for all these people too, because these people are highly educated. Many people have PhDs and it is legitimate research, even if it's anthropological or qualitative or whatever, it's still legitimate. Um, So that that led to a huge cultural change inside the company as well.
1: This episode is kindly sponsored by the Deliveroo Experience Team. I can say, as someone who spent two and a half years working there, that Deliveroo is an amazing place to come and be a designer, a researcher, or a UX writer. You'll get to break out of not just the screen, working on real-life problems around getting food from kitchen to table, but out of London, going out to solve problems for customers, riders, and restaurants in 14 countries around the world. There's a bunch of open roles as we speak with everything from senior managers to product designers, UX writers and researcher roles up for grabs. They're looking for applicants from diverse backgrounds. And if you're not sure if you qualify, you should definitely apply anyway. The job descriptions are not a checklist. All you need to do is head to delivery.design to check out what the team are up to and what your next job could look like. That link is also in the show notes. Thanks. Okay, so we're going to zoom... We're going to zoom in or out it, it depends on the lens but I'd love to talk a little bit about you know across across so many um, changes in direction for you if you like using those same skills compounding them in kind of different ways and moving into maybe different verticals and go, you know going from HCR, HCI um, and uh, electrical engineering all the way through to where you are now one thing that I love to talk to people about both on this podcast and just in general is how to recognize when there's a set of skills that you have um that you love to use can be used in a completely different context to to shake things up or to try something new rather than feeling like you know you could have gone yahoo google well i'm just i'm stuck in you know big enterprise tech now and that's where i'll stay and and instead you decided to go and use the things that you loved to move into something that was slightly different, you know, next door, but but um, but different. Well,
0: you know, it's interesting to hear you say, uh, refer to Yahoo and Google as big enterprise tech, because at the time that I joined these companies, they were not. Um, you know, I, my peers sort of laughed at me for joining Google, uh, Yahoo and Google, actually. <laughs> 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 but uh, Yahoo was just like this, Little, You know, hand curated web directory, it was not a huge enterprise player, you know, and so part of it is it's like, um, you, you want to go somewhere and, and make it great. Um, and like, how do you identify that? I mean, for me, it's always like, it's about the people. And um, if there's good energy, um, where people are kind of positive thinkers, they're optimistic, um, there's like a can do attitude, there isn't sort of a, you know, blame other people kind of mentality or blame the circumstances that you're in, like there's, you know, people have some sense of agency and locus of control, you know, like my fate is in my hands. Then, you know, but there are also people that are going to, you're going to look forward to waking up in the morning and and Mm. working with, you know, that's a huge part of it. And those were some of the biggest reasons why I joined Yahoo over all the other opportunities I had. At Google, it was the chance to, um, learn something and do basically the same job I had at Yahoo, but to do it in a completely different context that I knew was going to be very challenging. And that's why all of my peers in the industry at the time thought I was crazy to take that job. Um, I I took it, I embraced it because I was like, you know, here's a chance for me to challenge myself. And um, we define ourselves by the challenges that we take on. Um, When I transitioned to venture capital and also to startup, you know, like moving from running like a 400 person organization at Google to, you know, joining a a 20 person startup at Udacity might look like a a sideways move or a step down because like suddenly I'm not managing hundreds of people or whatever. But it really, I don't see it that way. You know, we're just learning. And it's a constant process of just seeing where am I going to learn something interesting and where can I give back? So I'm I've always looked at it as where's the best intersection between what I have to offer and what the world needs from me. And that was true for me in venture capital too. I saw the opportunity to contribute in this way because people were asking that of me anyway, but expecting me to do it for free. And I was trying to figure out how can I do this and still get paid. I don't know if there's any better magic formula than that. It's just sort of to follow your curiosity and see where the heat is. Where can you offer and where is their interest?
1: I suppose I'm just interested in whether you have a take on what seems to be a bit of a trend of maybe title inflation and and uh, people looking for the kind of extrinsic things over what you describe which feels to me like intrinsic motivators and how how someone who's thinking about their next step or thinking about their career in general would should navigate listening to those things which are still important you know and and especially externally to to show you know the progress that you're making and and to demonstrate your ability, how you balance that with those things that actually are more about what do I want to spend my days doing and with who?
0: I mean, this really comes down to a very deep question around how do you define success for yourself? I think a lot of us define success initially as the way the external world might define success. so maybe that's based on how much money you have or how big of an organization you run or what your job title is. Um, But at some point, hopefully, uh, you get to a point where you realize that um, that's, uh, that stuff is all made up, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is just like some, some system that's defined, you know, that, that, you know, externally, we've decided that, you know, maybe the status or wealth or whatever is what defines success. But that's not necessarily true. And I think if you, if you make career moves based on how many people am I going to manage, or how much money am I going to make or job title or things like that, it's going to be very empty in the end, it's going to be very unsatisfying and kind of joyless. Um, And so who wants to live like that? You know, life is short. So um, why not live life being happy? So, (laughs) um, you know, and, and, and I think it is possible to kind of, uh, like, you know, I I also think it's a bit trite to say, oh, follow your passion. Um, Because like, if your passion is, um, you know, dancing, or whatever, like you could, dance all day, but is that really serving the world in some way? I mean, very few people can do that and and make a living doing that. So I always tell people, you want to find the best intersection between your interests and what you have to offer and what the world needs from you. And I think if you can find that best intersection, then you can really be happy because you're doing things that you're genuinely interested and curious about, um, which then leads to more growth. Um, and then You'll, you'll be able to contribute because these people need and want this thing from you. And that will lead to not only career success, but ultimately internal happiness.
1: Um, so my, my follow-on question, this may be a, a difficult one to answer, but do you have um, any personal methods that you've used in the past or things that you've given to other people to help to identify those things? It sounds ridiculous maybe to say, but to identify what you actually enjoy um, or what, what gives you yeah. energy. Um,
0: yeah. I, I think this is a very interesting question. I mean, so I think it's a good idea to cast a wide net. Um, so like if you're looking at switching jobs, talk to a lot of people, talk to big companies, small companies, uh, whether it's design agencies or go in-house or whatever, like build a network, talk to a lot of people um, because it's like dating, you know, <laughs> and in that process, you'll learn a lot about yourself. You'll, 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 understand like, well, I, this sounds really exciting to me. And boy, after I visited that company, I just felt completely drained. I can't imagine going there every single day. Um, I, I think if you, if you listen to yourself internally, um, you will, you will kind of start to understand like what it will emerge for you, what you, what you're drawn towards. And I think the most important life decisions really come from the heart. You can make a bunch of pro-con lists, you know, and do some sort of analysis with spreadsheets. But at the end of the day, it's really, it comes down to a gut feeling. Um, And so it's important to cultivate the skills to be able to listen to yourself, listen to your heart. How does my body feel after I, you know, went and talked to these people? Mm -hmm. Um, So where do you feel happy and energized versus where do you feel kind of depleted? There are other things too that I think are kind of interesting um, tricks or hacks or exercises to to see where does my heart really lie, um, I kind of call this the 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 uh, it's like the envy litmus test. Um, but if you're considering an opportunity and you're thinking about doing it and you can't decide, uh, just imagine if like your best frenemy, you know, somebody who's like you see a sort of a peer, a friend of yours, but maybe a competitor or, you know, somebody you kind of aspire to be like or look up to, but, you know, you're always, you know, kind of think, what are they doing? And, uh, imagine if your best friend of me went and did this thing that you're thinking about doing, how does that make you feel? If it makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I wish I had done that, you know, or is it like, oh, good yeah. for them. You know, I'm glad that they're doing it, but I'm glad I'm not doing it. That also gives you, because that also is a signal to your heart. Like, do I really want to do this? That was actually the test that I took when I was debating over whether to commit so many weeks and hours of my life towards yoga teacher training. Mm. Uh, A friend of mine that I was talking, not a close friend, but a distant uh, friend who was like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about signing up for that teacher training, too. And I was imagining, gosh, what what if she does it and I don't do it? Am I going (laughs) to regret not doing it? And that's when I realized, like, oh, I guess, I guess my heart really is in this. I guess I really do want to do it. It's
1: interesting, you know, uh, envy, envy, or maybe envy is too strong a word for what you're describing. But but that kind of that feeling inside you of of um, you know looking looking across the road, uh, you know, at someone else, rather than just ignoring that and feeling bad about it, actually, you know, weaponizing it to to make decisions for yourself feels <laughs> like a, a pretty smart move. Um, <laughs>
0: Well, sometimes these external indicators really are effective at helping us connect yeah. with our heart. You know, it may be hard to listen to ourselves, but then these external factors kind of push us in some Absolutely.
1: direction or another. Again, going back to, you know, um, how you've seen the design industry and the design skill set change throughout all of the different parts of it and the stages of it, if you like. It Kind of your your bio sounds a little bit like um, Halt and Catch Fire. I don't know if you've seen that it's a series that basically covers the birth of the internet and the birth of, you know, computers and gaming. And, like, (laughs) you know, Netscape is this kind of iconic, uh, you know, early internet internet age. Um, What a designer was at that point versus what a designer is now is so different and it feels like the set of things that you're meant to know or meant to be good at has changed but also grown. Do do you think that that's true, first of all, but also um, how would you go about navigating a building yourself as a, a, a capable designer in this day and age? You no,
0: know, it's interesting. Um, if you ask me, like, is the job similar? It has it changed much. I mean, yes and no. I mean, actually, um, at Netscape, we had visual designers, we had interaction designers, we had user researchers. And those skills are all still relevant. They're all the same. The context and the tools are different. And the stakeholders may be a little bit different um, because back then we might have been prototyping in Dreamweaver or Flash because we're you know, designing software. And now we have all these cool tools like Figma and you know all these. <laughs> but uh, the skills are still the same. So the, the way of thinking and seeing the world and then how you approach design, I think, is still the same. It's still relevant. I think we're a bit savvier now around what works on the Internet and what doesn't in terms of good design. And, um there are many, many design patterns that people can draw upon now where we we know, okay, if you have a mobile app, then it's helpful to have this hamburger menu up here or this row of icons down here, or whatever. It's like we've sort of figured it out. And so what it means is that um, it means that designers really have to uplevel their skills. We're going beyond visual interface design to more strategic thinking around, the experience and product, you know, and I don't think that's unlike when we were designing software. It's like we had the Macintosh human interface guidelines with the windows interface guidelines. We knew that you had okay, cancel buttons in the lower right-hand corner and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, check boxes versus radio buttons. So the task there was to think more broadly about, um, how do you offer new and different kinds of experiences when you have the internet? So like at Netscape, we were talking about things like location independence, which is actually the cloud, (laughs) you know, and we talked about push technology, you know, which is actually like the feed, you know, and so all these ideas existed back then, but the technology wasn't ready yet. The design skills were all the same, but the technology wasn't ready. And so I think this is important for designers to understand is that um, design innovation is made possible to the extent that there's technological innovation. If the needs of design have evolved it's because the technology has evolved and enabled new and different kinds of experiences. I do think that what startups need and look for is different than larger companies. And that's not necessarily a re- reflection of changing times. I think it's just a reflection of what stage the company's at. So like if you're a small startup with 10 people, you're going to need, uh, uh, you know, most startups want a jack of all trades kind of designer uh, versus larger companies have the headcount to be able to get uh, people who are more specialized, even visual design or uh, product design or whatever—you know—there are things like that. And I often work with with our CEOs to to work through what's the best uh, strategy for building design capabilities inside their companies. Um, but um, yeah, so that's that's kind of how I everything's
1: see. changed and nothing's changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I think we should wrap. Um, it's been fascinating. I've got, I've still got like five questions that I haven't asked you. So maybe, maybe that can be a chapter two another another time. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But for now, thank you so much uh, for joining me. And um, where can we, where can we find you online?
0: Um, So on Twitter, I'm at Irene Al and on Medium, a lot of the transcripts of my talks and my essays and things like that are at medium.com slash design dash your dash life. You can just search Medium Irene Al and you'll find me.
1: I'll put that all in the show notes as well so we'll be able to find you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to that episode. Uh, If you want to go and check out Progression, you can at progressionapp.com. We're launching in Q1 but you can get your hat in the ring a bit earlier if you want to just send me an email or a tweet or whatever you need to do Uh, if you want to rate this podcast please do it really does help apparently and make sure you're subscribed to hear lots and lots of great episodes coming up thanks bye